0: Hello and welcome to the Loose Forward podcast. I'm Andy. I'm Bobby. And we're all about Rugby League. The M62 and beyond. Here we go, second time in a week. Feels weird, doesn't
1: it? It does, but this one is very, very special.
0: It is indeed.
1: And we've got, uh, I'm proud to say, we've got a world exclusive. That's only way I can describe it.
0: I, I, I agree, and yeah, looking forward to this, really
1: looking forward to it. I am. So this afternoon's pod, or whenever you're listening, hopefully you're listening on the way to Magic Weekend or something like that. Uh, we have got an exclusive interview with the former Rugby League World Cup CEO, John Dutton. Wow. Are you ready for this? Including, yeah. we're going to have a chat with John about his experiences, uh, what he's learned from that. Um, and then we've got a bunch of listeners' questions as well.
0: It's going to be really, really exciting, this one. Uh, yeah. I'm really anticipating this one. I can, I can feel it. it's good.
1: And he's on the line now. Now, I, guess I must point this out before we start, before we bring him on. Um, you know, he's now, John, he's now CEO of British Cycling. The last time you might have seen him on the television in a rugby league sense, uh, perhaps was like when he was doing the draw at Buckingham Palace with Prince Harry. Yes. And now he's made another step up and joined us here on the Loose Forward podcast. <laughs> <laughs> John, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us.
2: Oh, thanks very much hi Andy hi Bobby
1: hi hey so um John where do we where do we find you this afternoon do we find you in your in your new towers
2: <laughs> I, I, actually a very rare day working from home. i uh, I am in the very sunny climates of League.
1: ah see I was gonna get on to, I was gonna get on to that because I was thinking about this John the other day and I'm thinking, do you know what? I've known John now for over twenty-five years. I can't believe that time goes past. And I f- Bobby, I first I first met John when John was in charge of one of the county football associations. And when I used to go and see him, then have meetings with him there, um, I can tell you now that there was rugby league posters, um, John on the back of his on the back of his office door. Is that right, John?
2: <laughs> uh, absolutely right. Yeah, I'll... it's absolutely actually even been more than 25 years ago Andy. I
1: think you're right but I still remember that you still had your fixture lists up on the back of the door didn't you <laughs> I still remember that
2: uh, ne- 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 never changed we, we, we're, uh, we're playing it at a slightly higher level and uh, slightly better outcome at the moment than uh, 25 years ago
1: absolutely um well I mean first of all John I mean in, in terms of a rugby league sense I mean tell us a little bit about your journey because I don't think that's something that you've probably been asked that much is it in, in terms of everything that's that's gone on since
2: yeah, rugby r- through and through. Um, um, got it from my dad uh, to, to my first game in 1978 at Hilton Park. Um, I've been watching Lee um, ever since. And I still go on there with my dad and my uh, youngest son, um, played the game, did my referee qualifications, coaching qualifications, uh, ran the student team, we had a brilliant team up in um, Northumbria, um, and yeah, it, it, took me, it took me some time to realise I was neither good enough nor brave enough to play professional um, rugby league. My, my claim to fame, Andy, is I captained the North East in the first ever game that Scotland rugby league played, I think that would have been 94 when... Uh, Hugh Waddell, uh God rest his soul, was captain of Scotland and that, that was their first ever game. Um, so that, that, that's as good as it got, but uh, a career in uh, sports administration, it took me a while to end up working, uh, I think it was 2011 when I uh, first joined uh, Rugby League and uh, went on to work on the first of three World Cups.
1: Brilliant. Uh, do you know what, some claim to fame that, John, and... Hugh Waddell, uh, and uh, Bobby, you won't remember Hugh Waddell, but he was uh, he was a a bandstorming sort of rhino of a prop that played for Oldham amongst others, um, and then ended up playing for Great Britain. And uh, what a what a what a player he was! Oh,
2: okay. Yeah, yeah, you know, certainly was. He was a very uh, was very big in uh, in all sorts of respects, not Lee, not least character. So uh, yeah, I remember that as a, a very young. Uh, students um, playing in that game and uh, yeah Scotland have uh, obviously gone on to do amazing things and it all, all started there at the Meadowbank Stadium a, a double header rugby league and American football double header <laughs> yes mm. <laughs> uh,
1: absolutely yeah um you mentioned then 2011 um and you you, you got the job then uh, with in the first World Cup that was over here at that time in 2013 um I think that was working underneath Sally Bol- Bol- Bolton, wasn't yeah. it? In that, I think she was the CEO of the uh, the World Cup that year, yeah. wasn't she?
2: Yeah, she was. With, with Sally, I was the uh, the Chief Operating Officer. Uh, so myself, Sally, and a really small team. There was only I think fourteen of us full time that worked on the tournament. Um, oh, it's a completely different proposition to uh, what we just delivered, but but so many happy memories, uh, and, and it was great. It was a real game changer um, to have seventy four thousand people watching that. I uh, find that Old Trafford, um, again, that didn't feature um, England, to so see some of the um, the games and the competitiveness going up to West Cumbria um, in Workington. So, yeah, some real standout memories from 2013 and, uh, yeah, just a huge privilege for me as a rugby fan to uh, eventually work in the sport.
1: Yeah. Was it something that you wanted to do or was it just something that came up by chance?
2: Yeah, it's, it's something I wanted to do. I I um, had a great career, worked in golf and football and um, yeah, all, all sorts of different sports. But um, it just to be such a passionate rugby fan, the opportunity to not, not only work in the sport but also be involved in a World Cup and International Rugby League has always been uh, a huge passion of mine. Um, so yeah, and, and, and to do that from um, living at home, didn't have to... Um, moved 12,000 miles away to be able to do that. Um, so, yeah, it was a, a very fortuitous and very, very enjoyable. Do
1: you know what I was going to say to you? Having known you all that time, you, you've worked for the FA, you've worked for the World Cup, you're in British Cycling. You've never had to move out of Manchester, have
2: you? <laughs> I... I, I, I um... I certainly travelled. My first job working on the European golf tour, I uh, spent five and a half years and, and we travelled the world. I mean, literally um, from place to place um, and, and saw lots of golf courses. Um, although I'm not a golfer, uh, Andy, so it was uh, a slightly uh, surreal um, sort of intro into my uh, career. But yeah, I've been to some amazing places, met amazing people, travelled the world, but always have ended up link.
1: Yeah, brilliant. Home is where the heart is.
2: Absolutely.
1: And then from 2013, um, John, we had um, obviously um, an eight-year hiatus then with the 2017 World Cup in uh, in, in Australia. What, what did you learn, first of all, from 2013 and then from 2017 in Australia in order for you to aim to make 2021 a success? Yeah, it's,
2: a, it's a good question. I, I think 13, as I alluded to, Previously, it was just about the tournaments. It was, was re establishing after 2008 um, a, a proper bona fide tournament, but it was just delivering the tournaments. And 2017 evolved that by introducing a women's tournament that ran alongside it. So obviously, there were two completely different propositions. I mean, the geography, I spent a couple of months out in uh, Australia, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea. I, I'm not sure any team drove to their next game in 17. It was always a flight, yeah. and, and we went through. Darwin, to Port and Papua New Guinea, to across New Zealand. So I guess then what we thought was was probably a couple of things. One, it had to be more than what happened on the field of play, um, and we're really proud of that social impact programme that we delivered, and that certainly chained with um, governments and with many of our partners. Uh, and secondly, we, we always wanted to roll the tournament from seventeen. So um, Andrew Hill, was the chief executive in seventeen. Did a brilliant job of, of aligning the women's tournament, um, and we wanted to take that one stage further um, with wheelchair. So lots of learning. That I think overall, uh, just a uh, learning that uh, I've taken into my new role. You've just got to be determined as well because these things are really hard to deliver. Um, and gosh, we we certainly had a few uh, a few bits of um, adversity to contend with during our tournament.
1: Absolutely, I'll come on to that in a minute. But while we're on the the, the three World Cups in one, so to speak, um, first of all, how, how important was it for you to to actually carry off the three uh, the three World Cups in one? And what are the sort of challenges behind the organisation of that?
2: It, it was <coughs> excuse me. It's really important for us because it's what it's what we truly believed in uh, right at the start, and we had to, into um, government we had to put a bit into the international federation. So so there's a long way to go when that first idea of it's going to be three. The inclusive aspect, um, I think the hardest thing is it's it's easy to have a vision um, and to uh, put that into words, but then you've got to deliver against it. So when that came to the discussions of uh, the venue selection, when it came to how people travelled, when it came to where people stayed in hotels, if you wanted to aspire for uh, equality or inclusivity, you had to be able to back that up. And, and, and financially, that was really challenging. I don't think we quite appreciated when we put the vision out in 2016 um, how much it would cost us and actually how we deliver that. And, and we had a really careful balance between the men's athletes being full-time professionals, how they earn the living, and the women's and the winter athletes being part-time and, and that balance between, um, you know, can we have the same fixture schedule? Um, there were so many different considerations, Andy, to try and make it true to what we uh, believed in. And, and, and I think that we did that. And, and I know a lot of people across the sports industry have um, looked at that and, and you know, maybe we'll take some barriers away to other people doing something similar in the future.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Were you surprised um, how, I mean... Th- when you look at the, um, the wheelchair World Cup, um, the, the whole nation was gripped by it for weeks, wasn't it? I mean, first of all, I have to say the, the arenas looked absolutely fantastic as a, as, a spe, as a spectacle with the pitch and the posts and all that type of stuff in the stadium looked look absolutely fantastic. But were you surprised how much, for example, the wheelchair competition just, just grabbed
2: the nation? Yeah, we, we weren't surprised because we believed in it. We, we were absolutely delighted that we, we invested in the vision and we said, look, if we're going to do it, we, we can't do it in sports halls. We can't do it with markings all over the floor and it has to be uh, broadcast in the same way as the men's um, and women's tournaments. Now, that took investment. Um, it took some real vision to uh, do that, but we selected the venues, the Copper Box, That the first uh, the England-Australia game, seeing full copper box seeing the just the brilliant sport that Wheelchair Rugby League is, mm. the athleticism, the dexterity, the, the inclusive aspect um, of it. And so many people said at the time, and subsequently said, that was amazing. Um, my Some some people have said to me, from outside of the Rugby League uh, circle, the first ever experience of Rugby League of any kind was watching Wheelchair Rugby League on the BBC. Yeah, yeah.
1: And, and it was it was an amazing spectacle, and and there was one, I mean there was one incident, wasn't it, with the, with the French official that grabbed the nation, rugby league nation, for about two weeks, didn't it? So, but it all it it all added to the to the drama and everything that was going on within the wheelchair World Cup. Yeah, it, it did. We,
2: we didn't quite plan for that, but. Uh, <laughs> As, as you said, it added to the drama. You know, anyone who was in Manchester Central, um, that I, had, I think it was about four and a half the spectators, I had the absolute privilege of, of being there. I think that will live long in the memory. It was so special. Um, England performed and uh, what an incredible finish. Um, but it just had everything. It had drama, uh, controversy. Um, but when you look at the... That, that was sport at its very best. Uh, two teams, closely matched going against each other representing the nation um and it delivered such a compelling narrative
1: yeah absolutely but before we got to that point i mean you must have been in absolute shock i suppose really with the um with the pandemic situation that i i mean there was there was all sorts of um rumors at the time wasn't there that whether the World Cup was going to be delayed for a year, whether it was even going to take place at all, whether it was still going to play, take place in twenty twenty one, and that must have been a real um, a real test time for you on the team.
2: Uh, it turns was, uh, Andy. We, it, if you go back, you know, you commented about Buckingham Palace, and in January twenty twenty, we did the first ever first ever draws for the World Cup public draws at Buckingham Palace, and we found ourselves in the the world spotlight um, for. Uh, for other reasons, but that, that was a magical moment for the sport. And we felt pretty good about ourselves then. Of course, two months later, the pandemic uh, came around. And, and, and the tournament in March 2020 was still so, so far away. Mm. We were all confident that we'd be able to deliver it uh, in the way we hoped. And, and we carried on working and planning and putting all the things into place. And when we came back to work in January twenty one we, we knew that things were harder. We, we just, I think, experienced the second form of uh, lockdown and it was clear that what was happening in the UK, there was a different set of circumstances happening 12,000 miles away. Yeah. But we packed on and, and we planned and, and everything was put in place. And it was July, just just three months uh, before we were due to start the tournament, uh, where we'd invested a lot of public money um, and was ready to go. Um, and we received those Phone calls early in the morning to say um, Australia and New Zealand uh, are out. And we had three options at that point. Uh, either we could simply carry on uh, and, and stay the tournament without those athletes. Uh, that was never an option because, you know, why should we as administrators make decisions for athletes that weren't part of that decision making process? Yeah. Um, we could have walked away and that would have been the, the nuclear option. And, and at the time, you know, remember the the vitriol, the anger that was in the public domain. Um, And I think a lot of our board who were the ultimate decision makers um, resonated with that. People were really um, upset by what had happened and and really angry. Um, And then we worked worked through the the third option, which was to postpone. And and, and that was a difficult option in itself because what that meant is we had to carry on for 12 months. We had a team at that time of about 70 people um so full-time and, and consultants we had all the contracts in place so simply postponing actually meant a pivoting of the schedule where we moved into a you know, where it was the fifa world cup yeah. i think we renegotiated 175 agreements of venues uh, host towns and cities commercial agreement, broadcast we did that in 100 days um and 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 it was only you know i um this uh, Previously, you know, I, I wanted to walk away at that point because I felt I'd taken the tournament as far as I could. Okay. But it, but it was quite energising to uh, say, actually, no, we, we're going to stay, and, and we knew that there were some things that weren't ever going to be quite as good as how we delivered it in twenty one. Yeah. Um, but we were pretty resilient, pretty determined, pretty belligerent and, and just got on with it. Mm.
1: Did it ever? Did it ever come to it where it was close to not being held at all? Yes. Fair
2: enough. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and that, you, know, you have to balance it up by the public investment, um, the sort of work that we take is so far. But, you know, a bit like I know we'll come on to talk about 25, mm-hmm. uh, almost inconceivable that a sport that's been around for 127, 128 years couldn't stage a World Cup. And and that, for me, was never an option. And, and, and when we so uh, we spent a full day together as a board sort of talking through the various options and, and we were under pressure we, we had to make a decision yeah, of course yeah. um, and, 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 and that was tough but you've got to remember um this was all it wasn't about me or the board or um it was always about the athletes and, and we were here to create the optimal um opportunities for them and, and canceling not staging the tournament just it, it was never um a palatable option but yeah it was definitely uh, definitely considered
1: Mm, So there must have been a real sense of relief when all the contracts were signed and you got the go-ahead from all the competing nations then?
2: Yeah, I think Christmas 21, um, yeah, we we definitely um, drank a glass of wine and sort of relaxed for probably the first time because you'd gone over all of that energy to get to um, being able to deliver it. And and during the time of um, where the public health situation was different in Australia, Everything that was thrown at us, um, can we provide charter flights? Could could we provide uh, accommodation and security for people going back home for two weeks? And and everything that was asked of us, um, we we, we ticked the box and, and it was almost like you got to a point where there was nothing else to throw at us because we were always... Um, problem solvers and we'll make it happen so when, when we'd reconstructed the tournament, when we relaunched relaunched um, in November, we had a brilliant moment where we took uh, Oliver Thompson, our inclusive ambassador, he closed the London Stock Exchange um, and, and that was just like a brilliant moment to say, yeah, so we've overcome the adversity, we're going to stage a tournament next year and um, have a have a brief moment of relaxation and, um, and, and burst back into action in 22.
1: Yeah, fantastic. I always think on the back of, I mean, like you know, organised events and um, on different levels, and I always think that the actual easiest part is when the first ball's been kicked or whatever. So when that when that first ball is, is kicked, and the, the the first game was the uh, it was the England game, wasn't it? Uh, England, and, yeah. England, and Samoa. And when that when that first ball's kicked, sometimes you can, I suppose, you can, in one way, you can let out a big sigh of relief, can't you? Because it's underway, and and it actually it will not look after itself. But you, you know what I mean, don't you? It's all you know, it, it, it's there, it's yeah. happening. And it's actually the easiest part of the the process, I suppose.
2: Yeah, it, it's a de- delivering events, and particularly the size and scale of, of what we delivered uh, is complicated, uh, it's really expensive, uh, at times it's inefficient because you're setting up something um, of a special purpose to deliver uh, the thing, and you know, all, all of the adversity that we had to go through, and, and you're absolutely right, when the athletes arrive, you've re-decided relief, we've got 16 men's teams we can uh, crack on and stage the tournament, and of course we got to St. James's Park, um, and we had our uh, tournament welcome, and and. Uh, PA uh, failed on us, and uh, we had uh, a few minutes yeah. of Saturday was You know, you just sort of thought, thought "Gosh, what else uh, can people cry? <laughs> yeah. What else is to go uh, wrong?" So, so there was definitely a relief when we got to uh, the end of game one. And, and you're right, you know, it, it, people forget that the Rugby League World Cup it, it was 37 days, and when you're delivering a major um, sporting event, so the Commonwealth Games was 10 days, uh, an Olympic Games is two weeks, Wimbledon is two weeks, Open so Golf is a week. So, so it's really unusual to have such a length of time. Now what that gave us is we really dominated the BBC. So we never went away. We've got some brilliant uh, media, but mm. just from a, um, just from a people perspective, it gosh, it was hard to uh, get through the tournament.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very, uh, no, very good. Very good. You mentioned there, John, you mentioned about 2025 and, We've had the really like crushing news, haven't we? That, that France have um, uh, have pulled out on that. Um, what, what does that What does that mean now? I suppose first for an international rugby league, uh, but but secondly, in the more immediate term, in the um, uh, in the, in the future for the World Cup.
2: Yeah, I think the first thing to say, and say, is it's just really sad. Um, we were very close to the um, French twenty twenty five team. Really good people. Um, full of ambition, um, trying to run a tournament from headquartered in Paris, um, maybe too ambitious. Mm. Um, and, and, and we, you know, we certainly gave them our take on having just experienced the cost um, and the complexity. Um, but I, I just feel for Luke Lacoste and all of the people that are dedicated so much time. I just think it's really sad. W- what, what does it mean? Um, I know the International Federation, I have so much respect for Troy Grant. Uh, I think he's a a brilliant um, human being. And Troy, as chair of the International Federation, I'm sure, um, as he has done, will front up and, um, and will find a solution to the problem. But there has to be a World Cup. and Rugby League has to be internationally relevant. And I am a firm believer, my view has never changed, Andy, that there is the most growth that is left in the game is in the International Rugby League. There is exponential opportunities. And it means the calendar and it means everyone's come together for the greater good and it means the World Cup to really perform and and, and kick on, hopefully, from when we left off. You know, we delivered a tournament despite the adversity. We made a few mistakes along the way. We had plenty of learnings that we've passed on. we delivered it in a difficult um, political, socio-economic environment. But the the opportunity now to continue to grow. And you only have to look at World Rugby and the Rugby Union World Cup. In 1987, they delivered a tournament that made um, perhaps a million pound profits you fast forward to what's going to happen uh, later this year uh, and it will probably deliver a 500 million pound profit. Yeah. and yeah. Uh, and that's because it's been nurtured the commercial rights have been protected you know the nations are more nations playing uh, uh, that master plan that they've had um has been hugely successful and you know, maybe probably can't ever quite get that place but with the right because you're in with the right people and with the right collective responsibility um you know it has it has more than a chance
1: yeah i mean you mentioned about collective responsibility there so i suppose a very simple question but maybe a complicated answer was um is how serious um do the nrL take international rugby league?
2: Well, I spent three weeks in Australia. Uh, probably, well, it was, yeah, this time last year in June. I uh, went round to met every one of the NRL clubs. I uh, spent some time with the NRL and, and referees and sponsors and, and, and the whole host. And and there is definitely uh, an appetite. Um, I think that they are really clear that the league product, the state foraging product, uh, are front of their mind at this moment in time. Yeah. But I think there's a recognition that the players want to represent their heritage. Um, I suspect that they know probably half of the playing population in the men's NRL competition that have Pacific heritage and you know I think we saw through Samoa getting to the final this time, we saw what happened in 2017 um, you know, that desire for players to put on the national shirt and represent the heritage of the family isn't going to go away so I think a solution has to be found it just has to be found around um the number of games that players play giving them um rest um but, but that collective responsibility if you have a desire to make something happen you'll make it happen Andy uh, and, and I, I just hope that through this sort of Clamority um, through through the position that everyone finds themselves in. Now, um with France falling off, that this is maybe an opportunity where where people will step up and will come together. Mm.
1: So, from so if we have the World Cup, which you're saying is imperative to the game, obviously, if we look at that every four years, what fills the calendar on the other three to keep that international game on on the bubble, so to speak.
2: Yeah, there's got to be regularity. So, so, so I, you know, if I, if I put myself um, uh, back in my old role that I'm trying to sell commercial rights, broadcast rights, what what broadcasters, commercial partners, other people want it is a fixed calendar with regularity. So you can say every year there is a Four Nations or a uh, bilateral test series. There, there is a different product, whether that's nines or whatever that might be. There is the women's um, opportunities and wheelchair opportunities. And, and you put that together in a coherent calendar and it gives everyone an opportunity. You know, there's lots of discussion over um, the strength of um, some of the debutants, so Jamaica, Greece, Brazil, um, and so on. D- those nations need to play. And the only way for the game to improve from a competitive perspective is to give opportunities to the developing nations. And the more nations that play, the more the GDP of the sport increases, the more commercial opportunities there are, the more broadcast markets get opened up. And it goes back to what I said earlier before about the World Rugby um, strategy, that they've looked through um, the lens of we want more competition, we want more nations playing, but we also need that to. Commercially viable, um, and, and I'm sure you know. I've, I've been in the sport professionally now for 12 years, and I don't think we've had some real high moments. We've had some, you know, incredible things, but overall, we haven't had a fixed international calendar in that period. And uh, and that's you know that's something that I would hope would change in the future.
1: Yeah, it's the one thing that's really missing, isn't it? What What would you do um, in terms of this country? Then what What would you like to see? Mid season, because there's been so much, we've, we've tried so many things, haven't we? Um, exiles, Combined Nations, Wars of the Roses, diff- we've played France, etc. What well, yeah. well, ideally to, to grow the game internationally, if you like, from both an England and a, an international point of view, what would, what would you like to see in the middle of Super League?
2: Yeah, and it's just that, that, that's probably right it's never been solved and it's really hard isn't it? it, you mm. know, it to improve to continue to improve to reach World Cup Finals to lift the, uh, the trophy They needs to play against the best in the world and inevitably the best in the world at this point in time are 12,000 miles away so if you've only got a one week window it's, it's very hard to take players who are uh, not employed by England rugby, they're employed by uh, the clubs, and same in the NRL. Um, and I think that overall is the challenge: is to try and um, make sense of a calendar where the players potentially play less, yeah, but more high quality opportunities. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you can get to that point, um, it's the balance between the club owners who their own money and you know invest into the sports and without the club owners we wouldn't have a sports. it's the money that's derived from um the broadcast opportunities that are at the moment but it's also having that vision to say well actually this is the art of the possible and we can have the balance between club and country we can create some more commercial opportunities and we have a, a an international calendar that is coherent so rather than me going to one and saying, I've got a property here and I just want you to buy the tournament. You can go and you can say, I want you to buy into a 10 year vision. And there are multiple tournaments, there are multiple opportunities, they're going to happen across the world. And this is the, um, the level of coverage you can get. And, and, and that, you know, other sports have done it, um, Ruby is capable of doing it but it, it definitely needs some, um, some really clear thinking I, I, I really welcome you know IMG coming in as a strategic partner I know they're looking at the domestic game um, at the moment and, and it's part of the big conversa- conversation but actions speak louder than of the words and I think just to get to a point where you can see everyone can get behind a vision and there might be a few bumps in the road but uh, overall um, it will move the sport forward yeah
1: definitely right well <clears throat> Here's the tricky bits now, John. We're going to go on to the listeners' questions. <coughs> okay. So, um, I'm going to let Bobby kick off with the with the first one. Um, and I think this is from... Is it from the trial line is it this, Bobby?
0: It is, yes. It's okay. from the trial line um, So, uh, the trial line would like to know, John, uh, what's your biggest sense of pride and equally biggest regret from the Rugby League World Cup? <laughs>
2: Um, gosh, I, I think we've probably already covered it probably so B-Sense Pride is just simply getting to the start line and getting to the end line given all the adversity that we um overcome and, and the B-Sense Great is right here right now, we've just seen what's happened to France, the the, the the ability the opportunities that we've created I just want someone to pick it up and run with it and make it even better than um, we made with it so uh, probably, probably in all uh, lots of pride um, uh, and particularly for the people that worked so hard to get to that point but yeah just getting to the start line was a um, yeah cannot under, cannot be underestimated what it took
1: Okay and leading on from that then is a question from Rob Wood Um Rob wants to know John um, in your opinion what's the most inf- important factors now in deciding the host a new host for the 2025 World Cup
2: Yeah I, I think time um, I think it's whoever's now prepared to stick their hand up uh, have a a sustainable business model and um can get on and um different in in two years time um i, I have been well documented about uh, the business model uh, i don't think the current business model for the book up um <laughs> gives the organizers uh, the right opportunity because they carry all the costs and it certainly doesn't give the international federation the proper opportunities around commercial growth um so it would be great 25 you're not going to be able to the business model and put it back together again but um, I, I just think someone that's brave enough to stick their hand up um, and, and, and ensure that there is a World Cup in 25 or uh, I know there's been some dialogue about keeping that new four year cycle in 26 maybe giving people an extra year but mm. uh, however manifest, um it, it's just going to happen
1: Yeah I suppose in that way I suppose in if, if we ended up postponing to 22 I suppose if the four year cycle continued for them into it, 26 it wouldn't be the end of the world anyway would it really?
2: It, it, it wouldn't be the end of the world. I just some, some thought if you, if you think if you think back to uh, 2008 and, and already then you got the first displaced tournament because we should have delivered our tournament in 2012, we didn't want to go against the Olympics and Paralympics, so every time you display something it just has another knock-on effect and then you enter um, a space where other people might be, whether it's an Olympics, Paralympics, Rugby World Cup, whatever it might be so some careful thought, but yeah, certainly an extra 12 months um, I'm sure we'll be welcome to whoever's going to uh, be brave enough to stick the hand up.
1: Do
2: you have a gut feeling as to where it might end up? Um, I, I, I have no idea and I certainly have no um, professional insight but I, I, uh, I'm interested in New Zealand putting a hand up. I, I think that's um, great right for New Zealand and potentially one of the Pacific nations uh, to partner up. Um, I, I remember taking the Games to in Papua New Guinea in 2017 which was hugely successful Um, but you've got to consider at that time of the year the heat, um, the humidity, uh, some of the conditions there were pretty uh, challenging to play would believe but yeah we're uh, we're a pretty resilient group so uh, I think New Zealand um, would be a great um, option if the government preferred to help support uh, getting it on.
1: Yeah
0: absolutely. Uh, Our next question, John, comes from Simon Parker and Simon would like to know about the the pricing strategy and is there any regrets over it and perhaps not changing it when, when games remained unsold?
2: Yeah, well, thank you, Sam, for your question. Um, fundamentally, no, I don't regret the pricing strategy. I think we uh, what we set out to do, we got right. Um, all the games are priced £21 or less when we went on sale. £25 or less uh, was the uh, most affordable ticket um, when we went into the new cycle. We got things wrong, uh, definitely, and I think that was more about specific price categories. Uh, I would look at Warrington and Hull, in particular, and uh, some of the pricing categories. And, and the hard thing was you know, when you got to a point where tickets had already been sold and people had already paid money for those tickets, it, we never, ever wanted to discount. And, and, and we, I think we have an irregularly discount culture that we found uh, really hard to break. Um, but yeah, I, I do wish we'd have done something sooner about some of those price categories, particularly at the men's group games. I think that's where we really... Um, didn't perform as well as we could have but if you look at some of the high spots and, and actually the revenue aspects are really interesting so, so there, there was zero price sensitivity in places like Newcastle in London once the games to Middlesbrough Coventry, and to Coventry certainly didn't sell those games out but, but they, they delivered a higher yield than the traditional um, rugby league areas so there's a lot of learning that we've got we, we'd love to pass that um, on um, but yeah overall fundamentally stand by what we did um, hands up that we uh, we can do better and got something wrong.
0: Brilliant. And uh, just sort of sticking with that that line of questioning, John. Um, our next one comes from from Bay, and and Bay would like to know in in a sort of similar sense with regarding the website. Um, what sort of strategy was used when it, it did come up with you know things like low availability on the website but obviously you know, you could clearly see some of the games were only like a third full really um, so that's what just Bay would like to know
2: Yeah oh gosh um, not entirely sure um, specifically to the question I, I think overall um, when we put the games on sale like every bit of the stadium was open um, we then had to um, take all games off uh, because we had to do an enormous amount of refunds and that made it then complicated by some of the tickets we sold and some of the tickets we had left. So I, I suspect what happened in certain games was we, we hadn't put the whole of the stadium back on, which showed low availability, even though, as you say, we knew that there was a stand empty or um, some uh, elements uh, um, still unavailable. And, and, and it goes back to the mistakes I remember, in I think it was the first week um, at St Helens where we had a big demand for the lowest price tickets, and, and it was just simple human error. We, we had a TV uh, gantry in the um, most affordable area that was in the plan, it was subsequently moved, but we hadn't put that area back, back on sale. Um, and it was just things like that that we uh, you know, just kind of hold your hands up and said we could have done better um, with that. And you know, hopefully, what we learned we can pass on to. Uh, Whoever comes next,
1: yeah, absolutely. No, thanks, John. Um, uh, Johnny Lou, Johnny wants to know what was the logic of not putting more Fiji games in Rochdale and more Australia and New Zealand games in London because I know in 2013 Fiji were based in Rochdale because there's a big Fijian community there, isn't there?
2: Yeah, yeah, there were. We, we had the Fiji, Fiji Island game in Scotland that almost didn't happen, yeah. it was there, the the wettest night ever. I think it was the, the, the night that the clocks changed or just after the uh, when the clocks changed. So, but that was a brilliant um, occasion. Um, Ro- Rochdale didn't initially meet the criteria, um, stayed in the big process. And, and you know, got us all back to, and this is, this is a success story, that when we uh, ran the big process, we had 40, 40, old 50 step forward. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there's never seen interest like that. And, and we created a competition and, and people had to invest into that process um i think specifically with rochdale we shouldn't forget that england should have played fiji at rochdale uh, and that game didn't happen it got displaced to uh, to salford so um a lot of challenges um across the uk in terms of the um I'm trying to think of the right sort of word the, the, the Slightly uneasy relationship between football and rugby. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's also hard when you think you're delivering a tournament in October and November when um, it, the FIFA World Cup was coming, um, when we had lots of Premier League football grounds, lots of Championship football grounds, and, uh, and that created some real uh, challenges. Australia and New Zealand in, in London, um, you know, we, we thought long and hard about London and we made the decision that we wanted one premium opportunity uh, and that ultimately took us to the Ambert Stadium and, uh, and what a brilliant stadium. Yeah, um, absolutely, yeah. Great second game. But uh, we did think long and hard about could we put either Australia, New Zealand, maybe a group in London and look at the right size of the stadium, and look at the location and, and, and yeah I, I think that we got it right. Um you know, everyone will have a have a view but um yeah, it's just it's just hard, isn't it? was sixty-one games. Well, what we ended up with twenty-one venues, and you know, I, I think that was really hard. It made it more expensive uh, for one thing, from broadcasting and everything else. Um, you know, whoever, come, whoever comes next when the World Cup is delivered in uh, the UK may have a different view and maybe um, yeah, t- turn some of those things on its head.
1: Mm. I suppose as well, one of the, the big things as well, from what you've just said there, John, is there must have been a lot more. Um, uh, bidders, if you like, um, to hold uh, to hold games at ground between 2021 and 2013 as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, and, and that's you know we we, we we said no to people who were walking towards us with a with a big cheque, and, and that's that's a success. You know that 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 shows that we've stimulated interest, competition that people saw a value. Um, particularly, you know, we, we asked local authorities to be the lead in this. Um, local authorities now have. Less money than ever before, so we had 21 venues in in, in 2013. Mm-hmm. But we split it across. We went to France. We obviously had games in Wales and yeah. we uh, to to, uh, to Ireland. This because of the government uh, funding we got it had to be in England, uh, and we had to stage 85% of the tournament in the north, which we delivered again. So, so they were fixed fixed um, pieces, You know, maybe it comes back a bit to the London um, question. Um, but you know, when we went to York, we went to Newcastle. Um, we went to some you know, really brilliant places that, that hopefully we've created some memories that, that people will remember and create that desire to continue to watch. What we bring in the future.
1: Was there any? Was there any grounds that really sort of superseded your expectations in terms of like you know, some, somewhere new, for example?
2: Um, <clears throat> I, I know it's not new because it's a league stadium but I, I love York uh, and the women's games that we had at York were a real um, success story um, we, we, we went to Middlesbrough and the, the, you know, the crowd wasn't uh, what we hoped at Middlesbrough but, but they were just absolutely terrific they were really great to work with and again I think mean, it was an aspiration that they would want to um, host all, all the league in the future In Sheffield Br- Bramall Lane uh, yeah. you know, we, we're Um, great experience with England versus Greece Um, just a uh, one of my favourite stadium just such heritage and history uh, but also an accessible venue um and, and a really great atmosphere. So um, there were so many that stepped forward. and We had so many uh, options and, and and it wasn't just as simple as saying, yes, we would like this. We also then had to fit it into the schedule, schedule of 61 games across five weeks, dribbling rugby, football, rugby union and uh, a few other things.
1: Yeah, of course. Okay, back to Bay on our next question, John. And he wants to know, if you can tell <coughs> us if the Rugby League World Cup made a profit and how much, and has that had an effect on the French decision?
2: Yeah, well, I'd happily uh, answer the second part. First, because it's really straightforward, Is no. Uh, the decision by France was taken uh, locally in France and uh, certainly had nothing to do with the business model that we uh, worked to. Uh, overall, so, so we worked to uh, about £40 million pounds budget. That's what it cost to, to simply deliver the tournament. Uh, that was, we had a social impact programme that sat alongside that. Um, if you look at the business model that was delivered, we delivered the biggest ever rights fee to the International Federation. So if you take the PL before the rights fee, the tournament made a very healthy surplus. And you've got to put in context that we did that despite a pandemic and despite postponement. So, um, yeah, we, we, the financial outturn, would everyone want it to be greater and deliver more into International League going forward, of course. Um, was there a bill domestically for um, domestic here to pick up? Absolutely, categorically not. Um, did we get great support from the UK government? We absolutely did and worked really hard on that uh, relationship. Uh, was the tournament more expensive than ever before? It, it wasn't. You know, if you think of 20, um, 2021, had we stayed the tournament, inflation was 4%. When we delivered our tournaments, inflation was a forty-year record high of eleven percent, Yeah. and what that means is that everything that we bought and consumed cost a lot more, yeah. and we had the money to be able to um, afford that. So, um, yeah, the the, the, the the business model doesn't help, uh, but the team worked incredibly hard and leveraged enormous um, new money into the sport through the commercial revenue, um, and you know that's something I'm particularly proud of. Some of the partners that we Uh, brought in that had the first experience of rugby
1: yeah brilliant
0: fantastic um our next question john comes from kendall and kendall would like to know was there a reason the pdrl winners got left out of the celebrations at all
2: um gosh I'm, i'm not in Highly sure what that means, but let let let, let me give it a go. Uh, So, if if you think about uh, the tournament, so contract with governments and um, international federations to build the three tournament men, women, and wheelchair, which we did. PDRL uh, came along uh, as a um, participant pays um, competition. And, and we supported it because it was brilliant, and so we knew it would result in um, brilliant experiences for people. So we staged the final at Warrington. Uh, it's double-headed with one of the World Cup games. Uh, I personally earned £20,000 out of um, our budget that we didn't have to make sure that the broadcast. Pictures were of the quality that BBC would carry them uh, and, and, and produce those live, which we did. Uh, and then we invited the winning England team to uh, Old Trafford. They paraded the trophy, uh, interviewed pitch side at half time, I think it's half time, um, with the uh, with the BBC. So um, I'm sorry if anyone feels excluded by that, but gosh, we, we certainly over delivered against, um, against our promises. And, uh, 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 and I hope in the future that PDRL becomes the Proper fourth tournament of the World Cup because what we saw was you know incredible people um, playing the sport of rugby league with no barriers whatsoever, yeah. um, and that's definitely to be celebrated.
1: Absolutely, and it also helped when you've got like people like Adam Hills that, that are public oh. on it on his program yeah. and and his profile. I mean, that can't do any harm at all for the game for that particular aspect of the game and, and the game as a whole. Anyway, can it? So,
2: I, I, I do is just a superstar and uh, such a true advocate and obviously played in the uh, tournament. And, uh, and we had some amazing um, supporters. You know, Claire Balding as the, as the RFL president was just uh, brilliant. So, um, look, PDRL P- P- will go from strength to strength, I have no doubt. Uh, the same with LDRL. And and it just, you know, it really does make me proud to be associated with the league, whereby anyone of any ability... Um, can play the sports and there are opportunities that there that haven't been there in the past. So uh, that, that's something that we should all be um, you know, hugely uh, proud of. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Uh, next one is from League Freak, and uh, he uh, he's an Australian. Need to point this out, John, at the minute he is he's an Australian, and he says, "Is there a PR span on the on the phrase World Cup legacy in this country? Uh, and were you concerned that uh, so few games were competitive?"
2: Okay, uh, so two questions. Um, I, I really don't like the word legacy. Um, we chose in our program to say we would deliver a social impact program. It would all be delivered before the tournament uh, began, and, and £35 million of investment was made into um, community facilities here. And, and, and if you go and uh, go to Lee Minor Rangers, if you go to some of the main. Amer- in Salford um, if you see uh, Stilton morrington and and so on they they will be um, enjoyed by many people long after the World Cup has gone so so all of that you know I I think perhaps legacy uh, in other people in such is what happened after the tournament now I at work for rugby really league world cup at the whole of the team um left none of us um exist the company will cease to exist so actually the legacy needs to be the by other the people and we were hand in hand with the rfl who do some brilliant things um and tony sutton has picked up the bat and, and will carry on uh, some of that work the international federation have to play a part uh, and so on so legacy is, is manifest in multiple ways. It might be spectators. It might be volunteers. It might be community clubs. It might be uh, commercial revenue, uh, and so on and so forth. All we could do was play our part in creating the biggest noise possible. And when you look at some of the TV viewing audiences, they are simply astonishing. You know, in the in 127 years, we have had nothing like the visibility that we enabled. And you know, it's no nice for other people to um, hopefully take that uh take that forward. The the competitive um aspect and, and I think we touched on this a little earlier, uh, Andy didn't we about you know the, the opportunities for Jamaica, for Brazil, for Greece, um to play in a tournament, um, to experience what it's like being part of that um environment yeah. are far between. And 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 you know, in 13 we had more competitive games that the I can't remember what to call them but the sort of crossover games between Group C, and Group D. Um, I think the Tonga Scotland game, Scotland uh, Italy game, um, up in Cumbria were, we're brilliant games. Like one of them was thirty all, yeah. and, and 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 that was desirable. But that that's not necessarily then international growing the game. And we had you know Wales, uh, sorry, um, USA played in um, in the World Cup tournament for the first time, which again opens up an opportunity from broadcast perspective and so on and so forth. So. The, the, how the tournament structure is entirely a matter for the international federation, but I, I would definitely be an advocate of keeping 16 men's teams, but making sure there are more competitive opportunities before the tournament to prepare teams so that they, you know, when they go up against a bigger nation, that they uh, they are more prepared. And you, you can look at. Look at Namibia's journey in Rupert Union. Mm. And Namibia, in I don't know, three or four World Cups ago, were getting beaten by 90 points. And, and now they have more competitive um, opportunities because they have more regularity and they played in more tournaments. So uh, you shouldn't forget that the first first games of Tonga and Samoa, and I think Papua New Guinea, um, from memory, what well, certainly one of those was a 70-odd-nil um, whitewash. Yeah, no, tell, know, uh, it, I
1: yeah, yeah, I, I completely... Yeah, sorry, John, go on.
2: No, no, I'm I just... You, you know, Everyone's out somewhere, and, and gosh, we, we all know desire that Samoa, and Papua New Guinea are part of the future.
1: Yeah, powerhouses, yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with you, because, I mean, you mentioned Greece there, and let's not forget, it was probably only 12 months ago that they were training at midnight, um, behind the eyes of the government, that, that wouldn't even uh, let them play rugby league. And for them yeah. to compete on the world stage is an absolutely you know one of the biggest success stories of the rugby league world cup anyway I would imagine
2: what, 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 what happened with Greece and we played a small part in that It transcends rugby you know the, the, this is about the basic human right to um, compete in a, a sport of your choice and um, you know, what what an immense success story as you say, that they've had to come to such adversity and have had that experience and have the big um, loss against england but but they will get Better for that they will get stronger um it has given that visibility back to the government uh, and there, there is more right? you know, I look on social media now more content talking about the regularity in Athens and, and how other things are developing it we needed that big marquee moment and, and i dare say that jamaica will take the benefit brazil certainly you know some amazing stuff um, rob bergen in particular um has done a, 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 and it's that catalyst um because it has that visibility um, people are able to take that forward. So, um, no easy answer, but lots of sports have gone through this. It's sort of growing pains of maturity. Um, but I, I would definitely be an advocate for the continuation of 16 men's teams. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. Um, this is a selfish one. It's from us. Um, and it's just, I'm going to split this into two, John, if I can. So, the question is, is what was your favourite game from the Rugby League World Cup? Um, but I'm going to split it down. First of all, as a, as a CEO, of the organisation, but secondly, a- another game that was just from you as a rugby league passionate diehard fan.
2: Oh, wow! The, uh, ju- ju- just as a fan, the Australian New Zealand men's semi-final, Ellen Road was one of the best games of rugby league I've ever seen. That was amazing, um,
1: wasn't it? Absolutely amazing it, game. That
2: yeah, it, it just had everything, um, and the athleticism, and skill. It was uh, it was absolutely superb. Um, Gosh, I, the other question is harder. I, 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 I was, I was, I was going to say England versus France in the I final, but I'm, I'm going to cheat. So, so what I'm going to say is the second half of the men's final.
1: Okay.
2: And, yeah. the, and the reason being, you know, we everyone was fairly really despondent that the England men didn't get the final. We'd see a big score in the women's final we were really nervous about the people that bought tickets of whether ultimately they were still going to show up because there was no English on the day. And then at time, Kevin Sidfield came onto the field and there wasn't, I don't think, a dry eye in sight. Mm. Yeah. And from that time, Samoa came back, we had the crowd chanting for Samoa, yeah. and then all three winners stood on the podium all together. And it was just that that sort of, you know, through, through all the adversity, through all the challenge, what happened at the men's half time with Kev, I, I think, really, really put rugby league on a platform that it's never been on, celebrated the world, and had you know, human cut through. It was about humanity, it wasn't about rugby league. Um, and of course, we had a brilliant second half of the um, World Cup final. So I've cheated a bit there, but uh, that, 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 that will be my, um, my answer. Brilliant.
1: Thanks, John.
0: Uh, our next question John uh, comes from Andy Preston um, and Andy would like to know um, obviously now that you're involved with uh, cycling what three priorities for rugby league uh, what three priorities are needed for rugby league to flourish over the next 10 years and is there any examples of of good practice you can take from rugby league into cycling
2: oh gosh good Good questions there, Andy. Um, I, I, examples of what I can take in, sort of from a rugby world cup perspective, uh, resilience. Um, I think the sport of rugby is incredibly uh, resilient and full of some really fantastic people. Um, vision. You know, go back to the start of our conversation. We, we began in 2015 with a vision and when well, we delivered against it despite everything that we had to uh, contend with. Uh, and I think a sense of purpose, you know, ha- having a purpose that was more um, probably more rounded than ever before is what happens off the field um, can um, gel with what happens on the field and you've got, you've got, you can do more, you can reach more people. So I, th- I think it could take that into cycling. Uh, three process for the league to flourish. Um, I think that um, the international game, um, since centre number one, um, I, I think to celebrate more the heroes that play the game and, and, and give them more media profile um, we all remember um, wonderful teams in the 80s and that Wigan team and every week on grandstand and you'd see rugby League and, uh, and we don't see that I think Channel 4 um, initiative is great and and I'm pretty biased being a Lee fan this season and watching Lee play really well but I think Super League competition and the players um, I think the standard is so good we, we just need to be able to celebrate uh, that even more uh, and I think the third uh, area is, is to continue to expand the other opportunities and Women's Rugby League and Welsh Rugby League are on a massive upward trajectory we talked about PDRL um, and the opportunities that that presents so I, I think if you can harness those things international of celebrating and promoting the, the the real heroes that play the game, um, and, and just ac- continuing to expand the uh, the diverse opportunities for people to find their own level.
1: Brilliant, thanks, John. Um, John, we're going to let you we're going to let you go in a minute because we, we've been going, and I just wanted to say just like how much we appreciate your time um and just your honest answers i mean the 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 hour that we've spent together now has just been absolutely just fascinating it's been re- it's been so revealing into the background behind the world Cup so we just want to say thank you to that um I've just got one last question which is really important for us um for the listeners um Have you got a favorite part of the podcast
2: this <laughs> is <laughs> the easiest question you've asked so far. So, undoubtedly, Bobby's that of the week. I definitely my <laughs>
0: There you go. I can't
1: believe it. So, are you definitely a Boblet then?
2: <laughs> I think I've passed the test on I mean, that. Okay. Yeah,
1: absolutely. <laughs> definitely. definitely. John, I mean I mean I, I, again, thank you John so much. Um and um I, I suppose now, I suppose you can you can just get back to enjoying rugby league as as, as a fan, as you said, with your with your dad and your family and um and it's something that you never lose the passion for, isn't it?
2: Oh god, oh, ne- ne- never ever. And like forty, fifth season of watching my team, so um look I, I will always uh, be associated with the rugby league for the time being. It's um I understand and and uh, watching, but um, yeah, look. But rugby league has always been part of my life, and will continue to be in the future. Um, I'm hugely privileged to be working in title which is also an enormous passion. Uh, but yeah, th- thanks so much for the um, opportunity, and um, you know, ho- hopefully the game can continue to grow and thrive. It's why we uh, why we all love it.
1: Absolutely, and give us a, give us a quick prediction for Lee for the rest of the season.
2: Uh, like everyone's getting excited about the potential to um, be in the Challenge Cup semi-finals. They have to get over York first, but after 52 years, um, 1971, the last time getting to Wembley would be uh, would be amazing. But what Derek um, has done, what Adrian Lamb has done—you um, know—a lot of the players playing in championships last season—it's um, just it's just a joy to watch. So, uh, even if if the season ended today and if you don't don't win another game from today, going forward, I, I'd be. Uh, I I think they'll push on I think they'll uh, continue to surprise in your life Brilliant Now
1: John once again thank you very much Um, and it's just like I said it's been fascinating and we appreciate your time so much and and, um, obviously from all of us um, thank you for what you've done for Rugby League and the best of luck in, in your new ventures in cycling
2: my pleasure. for the opportunity.
1: No worries, um, and I think that's that's it for most, Bobby, isn't it? It is indeed. Yeah. So again, I hope you listen to this pod on uh, on the way up to Magic Weekend. Uh, whoever you're watching for your team this week, uh, I hope it goes well for you. Um, especially Lee fans for John, but from all of us here at the Loose Forward
0: Podcast, it's goodbye, goodbye.